Fear itself is sponsored by Oto, the leading CBD brand. CBD is one of the most exciting ingredients in beauty and wellness right now. Approved by the World Health Organization, CBD is a natural, safe extract derived from the cannabis plant. It is completely non-psychoactive and won't get you high. Instead, CBD connects the body and mind to create balance and has been shown to help regulate sleep and even reduce inflammation. Oto was created by Gemma Kaleo, who first started using CBD in California to help manage her own anxiety and sleep. When she returned to the UK, she found the CBD market to be crowded with ineffective products and confusing dose recommendations. She wanted to redefine CBD in the UK with sophisticated products that are enjoyable to use. So, Oto was born. All Oto products come with the Oto Strength Guarantee, delivering a daily dose of 40 to 60 milligrams of CBD to help you find your space. Visit otocbd.com for more information. My name is Carl Loco and I am afraid of being misunderstood. Welcome to Fear Itself with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with people about their personal stories around fear. In my experience, fear can be motivational, but it can also really hold me back. And I'm curious to understand this dynamic a bit better. How does fear show up? How do people try to hide it? How can we harness it? And what can we learn from it? My guest this week is Carl Locko, an ex-gang leader who has evaded both prison and death. By the age of 16, he had been shot at and stabbed. Now at 30, he has completely turned his life around and is helping turn the tide of knife crime in London. He is now an advisor, change agent, public speaker and proud father. He is also an incredible poet and an all-round inspiring human. I was curious to know what Carl's fears were when he was involved with gang crime compared with now. We talk about how the fear of being misunderstood affects his day-to-day life and how he uses his fear in a positive way. His life stories are fascinating and I loved hearing how he has transformed his life to help others. Please listen out at the end for his poem, It Gave Me Goosebumps, and it's really, really not one to miss. Hello, Carl. Hey, Chris. I've been so excited about this and I actually feel a bit nervous because there's so much I want to ask you. Yeah, no, go for <laughs> so it. So I've had to sort of like narrow it down. Um, can we talk about this fear of being misunderstood because I think it will really resonate with people and it's definitely a fear of mine but yeah. I think in obviously a completely different context uh, to you. It's something that gets me quite worked up. Like personally, I get there's no frustration I know like someone not actually getting my intention, you know? And I think it's because that's happened quite a fair bit growing up. Me being um, Aspie and quite heavily dyspraxic on the spectrum. And yeah, I've just not kind of totally understood certain things, Mm. you know? And I haven't had the same emotional, emotional responses to things. And it's been quite evident. And I've felt very alone. Yeah. You know, when that is happening, and I just don't like that feeling. Um, growing up, I think I can actually recall some of the earliest situations that have left me with that feeling, you know, and yeah. it, definitely a lot of it happened while I was in primary school, you know, quite early, and e- even reception. I remember I had imaginary friends, you know, and <laughs> um, I was able to get away with that in the safety of my home. 
you know, my parents didn't really kind of like scorn me for doing that or tell me off or say that's ridiculous or anything. So um, that kind of built my <laughs> my confidence and I took it to school. <laughs> and then when I ended up taking this imaginary pet Jaguar to school, <laughs> I mean, uh, as you can imagine, school kids can be quite cruel, you know. <laughs> so I think that kind of told me, wait a second, you leave your whole self at home mm. you know and I think I have been doing that ever since do you know it's a camouflage you know the key word is camouflage mm. I feel like as if if I don't kind of go outside with the makeup on if I don't have the camouflage mm. and I do show them me in my entirety and if they reject me that means they've really rejected me you know but if I do go out with a camouflage or a bit of makeup on I can kind of hide behind the fact that that wasn't totally me you know so it's just it's, it's more an armor if anything do you mean when you say misunderstood as well if you were to show your true self is it that fear of not being of being rejected for just being who you are? Yeah, definitely. The bulk of it is the rejection. You know, it's a fear of rejection. You know, so. Is there a time recently that you can remember that you have had that experience of being misunderstood? I get it quite often, <laughs> if I'm honest, because I get meltdowns. You know, I'm like being on the spectrum is quite like the world is not fashioned in that way. Mm. You know, so, for example, I genuinely get lost every day, whether it be in my thoughts or actually directional, you know. So there's just a level of kind of frustration that comes with that. And then I melt down and then someone might speak to me or ask me something and I might reply in a way where they're like, oh, that, that was a bit harsh. And I'm like, oh, it's not actually because yeah. of you, but because of what's going on around me that it's made me kind of respond to you in that way. You know, I'm sorry. But because it's invisible and also the fact that I have put on camouflage for so long in terms of my spectrum camouflage, people just think, oh, you can do it. Yeah. You know? Sorry, when you say camouflage, do you mean this? Is it like a mask that you put on? It's like a mask for sure. You know, like a prime example actually is I've been to a lot of funerals, unfortunately, you know, um, buried a, a lot of friends. At times I used to go to funerals and I'm never crying or friends are murdered and I don't cry. And then my face is like kind of like how it was when I came, you know. And then people started to raise eyebrows like, how come Carl isn't crying? How come he doesn't ever cry when, you know? And I never understood. And I used to think I was, there was something wrong with me, you know. But I'm grieving. I just don't grieve in that same way. And seeing your kind of emotional outburst at that time... I don't know, it just doesn't move me at that moment, you yeah. know? So it's a bit, it's almost as if I'm already in a place of grief. I'm already heartbroken. You know, I've already cried my tears, you know? And then I realised that that wasn't taken so well. So what I do now is that I go to the graveside and I just look around for a face and then I wear somebody's face. That seems appropriate. I just yeah. do exactly what they're doing in terms of my countenance, yeah. So you're kind of copying what you're... Totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, I've been doing chameleon work my whole life. Hmm. You know, even to the point where I, <laughs> I'll never forget it. My, my wife came to the cast, came to come and join me in Australia. 
and I was doing a five-week tour over there. And I think she came to join me on my second week out there. And I gave a talk and then she, I came off stage and she was just looking at me in total shock. And I'm like, what's up? And she's like, you do realise you gave that whole talk with an Australian accent? <laughs> I said, what? She was like, and then the, <laughs> um, one of the Aussies nearby was like, no, really? And it was a really good accent too. I was like, I didn't even realise I was doing that. She was like, yeah, you just kept on flowing in and out of it. And it was like, let me hear your accent. And I'm like, I can't do any accents. But it was just naturally just how I reflect. And I've been doing that as a coping mechanism since a child. I actually once heard you say, since changing your life round in such a dramatic way, you've actually tried to soften your voice. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, even if it might be a subconscious thing, so people don't perceive you in the wrong way. But actually, absolutely. how you used to speak was very loud and absolutely could possibly yeah. seen as quite aggressive. Yeah, but actually wasn't at all. It was no. just it was just you speaking. I mean, Afro Caribbean kind of culture is one where. You use your hands quite a fair bit when you're speaking. Mm. The volume's slightly more raised, you know? And there's a level of kind of passion, even if you're just kind of like debating something, you know? Which someone else outside of the culture might perceive as, wow, this looks like this is quite heated or violent and it's not, yeah. you know? So, yeah, so I, I am aware of my environment and I just kind of do the protocol for every environment I am in mm. you know so I wouldn't normally be wearing a pink kind of T.M. Lewin shirt so because I went to go and give a talk at the Guardian today you know so this, uh, I, wore, I wore my uniform you know just consciously I just want to translate you know I don't want things to get in the way of communication. So Carl during the time when you were involved in gangs yeah was the fear that you have now about being misunderstood was it something very different then yeah absolutely and I always kind of put gangsterism as a sort of suicide I call it a slow suicide if I'm honest you know because um, on reflection I realised just how little I valued life you know in general you know it, it didn't matter whose life it was really it's, obviously my loved ones were you know, but there was little care for life, including my own. So we might be, I don't know, going from a venue to another venue in the car and we are absolutely doing so much on the clock and I haven't got a seatbelt on, you know. And I mean, just total kind of like endangerment, like just total kind of reckless behaviour. And now, because I know I've got something to live for, <laughs> when I get in the car, I put on a seatbelt. Mm. You know, I, f I feel like that's kind of showcases where I'm at in terms of what my fears are now, what they were then, mm. you know, so. So, I mean, you did say once, you said, I've been shot at more times than I've had birthday parties. Yeah. Did you not fear death, especially when you're seeing a lot of your friends die? I wouldn't say I, I didn't fear death. Mm-hmm. I think I was maybe so afraid at the prospect I ignored its existence. Mm. You know, if that's making any sense. I almost became delusional in my immunity to it. You know, I think flirting with death and being shot at so many times and being stabbed at so many times and being cut on different occasions and 
I almost felt as if in this kiss chase, they just couldn't kiss me, <laughs> you know? And um, yeah, so it wasn't that I wasn't afraid of death. I just never thought it would be an op- And it sounds ridiculous with so many people dying around me, you know, but I actually didn't think it would be my portion. It was weird. I, I mean, I have to just put it down to a delusion, for sure. And um, on a street level, there's just so much mental illness that's not... Like, I mean, it was a genuine delusion. Mm-hmm. I, at times, would be outnumbered, outgunned, see someone else that's in a... Like, I mean, like, they've got their gun in my face. This is literal examples. I've had two firearms in my face at the same time, you know, and I have attacked them while they have their guns in their hands pointed at my chest, you know? And you didn't feel fear then? I did. It was like a... In, let's take this occasion where they had two firearms at me. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, The natural response when the first firearm came out was like, wow, that's a gun, that's lethal. And then it was like I got a next gust of confidence and bravado from somewhere else. And it was like, I'm locks. That's what my alias was. That's what they used to call me. Yeah? I'm like, I'm locks. Kill me, live where? Literally, that's what just started booming in my head it's like kill me live where like kill me live where i am the biggest we are the baddest we are the we are and i mean it's like this chorus just calls me to dance with them and i'm like i'm ready to tango you know and it makes no sense but that was the delusion you know i joked about it with some friends after when we got out and we've denounced gangsterism i was like we actually used to perceive ourselves as if we had armies like literal armies, like all the king's horses and all the king's men. We actually would walk in life as if that was our reality. And it wasn't. We were far from that reality, you know. But yet, that was the sort of, you know, way we carried ourselves. And I think it's all rooted in powerlessness, you know, because when you're feeling so powerless, you almost have to feign power, you know. It's like... We almost created some sort of, I I became a king of of an imaginary empire, you know, and I'm its emperor, you know, and I have no clothes on, yet I think I'm fully dressed and it's the best garments in the world, you know. I used to say I love my community, I love my area. I used to walk past, smell the smell of sewage, yeah, because there was a lot of kind of like broken pipes on the mites for their state. And I'll go... Oh, I just love the ends. Ends being colloquial for the area. And I'm like, I just, I just love this place. Yeah. Who loves the smell of sewage? You know what I mean? But it's like, almost because we, it's like we settled with the fact that there was nothing else for us. So we had to kind of make the best out of it and just deal with it like what it wasn't, you know? Again, another delusion. I mean, we were really quite delusional. So, <laughs> And also, I guess that, that was your family. I mean, I know you, you yeah. actually have come from a very stable oh, home, home life. Yeah. But was it just a, a community thing? Because I feel like when you talk about the gang that you were in, it really was like a family and you were the leader of that family. Yeah. And you had to guide them. No, absolutely. We are obligated to each other. It's obligation, you know, and there is absolute sentiment and love and it's almost as if there's a camaraderie that's fostered when you are 
towing such dangerous lines. You know, um, it's almost similar to like some of the endurance challenges I do mm. in my present life, you know. You might have been strangers before you got on your bike and attempted to cycle from the north to the south of Italy. But drawing out, no, maybe like five days in, you get a bond, you know. And yeah, that was the reality. We did bond in that way. But there was actually kind of like real things happening, which kind of provoked us to even say we're going to band together in that way. For example, the first time I saw someone being shot, I was 12 years old. You know, and I was playing ball where it says no ball games allowed because there's no football pitch, you know. And yeah, there was a group of young men close by us. And I reckon that when we were about 12, they were about maybe 16 to 18, 16 to 20. And they were cool when our ball would go their direction. They would roll it back, you know. They seemed like decent characters. And then they responded when this 4 by 4 um, silver jeep came into the area. I could see the energy changed. You know, bandanas came out of back pockets, hoodies went over heads. Um, they approached this car, there was words exchanged. Then one of the guys ended up pulling a long-nosed revolver out of his um, joggers and literally aimed at the driver and fired twice. And then the car then um, tried to speed off. It hit a pole, but because of the power of the car and the desperation in the escape, it ended up mounting the pole, you know, while bending mm. the pole. So it's got two wheels in the air. Um, then they're scurrying like ants trying to get out of the car, you know, and we're just kind of in shock, you know, frozen. Just are we actually witnessing what we're witnessing, you know? And then in that kind of just paralyzed with kind of fear and confusion, we literally watched the shooter run back into our direction. He ended up taking a brick from the wall, put the firearm in, put the brick back there literally took off his jumper, put it on one of our makeshift goalposts and told us to carry on playing footy with him. You know, so we had to pass the ball, play football with him until the police came, asked us which way the shooters or the people that was involved went. And then he pointed that way and we all followed him. Also and kind of just put our hands in the direction he kind of said. And yeah, the police went that way and that was it, you know. And then when he realised the coast was clear, he kind of gave us all like a, a nod and then kind of just went off into the... <laughs> you know? I mean, it's ridiculous. You don't get any counselling for anything like that. You know, you don't really know how to react in situations like that. I haven't been prepped for that. It's not what school prepared me for. It's not what my home life prepared me for. It was just outside of the script, you know. So um, to process that, I don't think we did the best job, but we did the best job we could do. Mm. You know, and and our response to that was to arm ourselves, you know, get involved, yeah. you know, um, be an aggressor, you know, band together, strengthen numbers, you know, so, yeah. But do you think there is the sense that fear is one of the reasons why people are drawn to gangs because they feel afraid, so they have to pick up the knife and they have to pick up the gun because they have to protect themselves? Gang violence is fueled by fear. It is it is the coal they burn <laughs> yeah. for that engine of rivalry. Absolutely, no. The majority of people are just afraid. You know, I remember I actually at one point carried a knife not to even use it. <laughs> it was purely to deflect or to counter. You know, if someone else had one, 
you know? So it's almost like the Cold War. This country's got nuclear bombs. Oh, yeah, we're going to get nuclear bombs. And that's happening on a macro level, you know? And you would expect, I don't know, heads of states and <laughs> leaders to do better and to know better. So I don't understand why they're so confused when they're seeing young people saying that, you know what, we think it is a rational thing to do by carrying a knife. You know, I thought it was the way to be safe. You know, I ended up, I've still got back problems till this day because I wore a level three bulletproof vest every single day. You know, whether it would be summer, you know, I'm boiling, but I'm wearing it, you know, and it wasn't a fashion statement. I did it because I was afraid. Mm. You know, I, I actually would only take it off when I got home, you know, and then I remember there was a situation where a young man was killed in his bed in Peckham. So from that day, I didn't even sleep with it off. Yeah. I slept with it on, you know, again, just to show that it is fueled by fear. That was a reaction to a story. That was a reaction to what had happened, you know, and I didn't want to die. But just because I didn't want to die, it doesn't mean I was afraid of death. Right. If you're getting what I'm saying, yeah, completely. you know, so I don't want to eat fish today, but I'm not afraid of the fish on the plate. You know, I just don't want to eat fish, you know, and that's what it kind of was. I, I did want to live, you know, and I would do whatever it took to ensure that I did kind of stay alive. But in terms of a constant everyday fear of I'm going to die or I don't think I had that. And if I did, maybe it was when I pushed it so far down that I didn't notice it you know until the point where I got a huge reputation in um, London in the gang world for being fearless I wasn't fearless but that was my reputation you know and I think I began to live up to the legend you know again with this delusion they're like oh yeah Lox is never scared you know he's never scared and I just began to believe that I was never scared you know but also because you were this leader and do you think there was a sense that you had to push down any fear or vulnerability yeah, yeah. because you were leading these guys and you can't show that yeah. vulnerability do you absolutely. think there was a bit of that absolutely there was a lot of that there was a lot of that I was looked to a fair bit you know it was almost as if I was in charge of charisma you know I literally had to keep our team's morale up I remember giving speeches <laughs> like to literally the guys. to the yeah like if we had taken a loss you know or we were feeling like we were on the back foot I'll try to motivate them you know and I had to speak from a place of conviction so I convinced myself I guess mm. you know so yeah what's amazing though is now you you know you do this amazing poetry and you're such a beautiful writer and in order to do that I really believe you have to be vulnerable and open that part of you that yeah. is softer mm. and that's such a con contrast to yeah. where you've been yeah absolutely I mean <laughs> in terms of writing the poetry I was able to do that in secret there's a period of my life where it was totally eclipsed by rap you know so it would be more lyrical into an instrumental but when I actually started writing poetry um when I was about maybe a 22 you know I was doing that totally in secret it was my therapy mm. I didn't have any intention to share it with another human being the only one that had was privy to my poems was my cat Joey <laughs> <laughs> so no one asked me not, not another soul no human being 
because you were worried about being vulnerable to not really it just wasn't the um reason why i created the poems right i created it purely almost as a dear diary you know and i used the ambiguity of poetry for safety and i mean for my own safety mm. was regards. it like a kind of coping mechanism coping and all, yeah coping yeah for sure and i spoke in code because it was ambiguous you know so um yeah you couldn't find the book of poetry and then send me to jail you know <laughs> because it is written in a you know an artistic way so yeah and when you decided to choose a different path in yeah. life was it um, a gradual thing there was no big bang that's how i like to explain it you know someone thinks oh you live in a new life yeah there was one kind of pivotal moment that you just did the u turn mm. you know it didn't look like that for me you know, it was a lot of small bangs. Yeah. And those clusters is what brought about that change. The earliest one I remember was actually while I was doing my kind of normal every other day ritual. <laughs> yeah, which was I would have linked my plug, my connect, whatever you want to call it in terms of for drugs. Mm -hmm. And then I would um, go to my friend's basement and I would put on the same artist, his name was Uncle Murder. He's a rapper from East New York. And then I'll get the scales out and I'll start um, bagging up the drugs, what we used to call food back then. I'll be bagging up the food. And then um, I'll call my workers and be like, yeah, um, be ready to come and meet me by X spot at X time. And then I'm doing the money dance, you know? I, I, don't, I didn't see drugs. Drugs on a scale was not drugs. It was actual money. It's just, we didn't even have the connection to this being mm. drugs, you know. It was like each bag I kind of weighed up and put there. I was like, yeah, that's a tenner, that's 20, that's, it's just money, you know. And um, as a result, I'll be doing the money dance, you know, have that kind of happiness. And in the middle of this dance, like just kind of bagging up this food, these drugs, I, I heard the voice, like it's a still voice from inside. And I was saying, I am making a living of other people's suffering. And I had never, ever seen supply and a demand mm. as suffering. You know, I thought that this is what they yearn for, they need. And I am just meeting that demand. I never saw it as a suffering. And from that one moment, the whole process the whole kind of action was stained. It never, ever went back to being the same again. Mm. So then it just kept, it was quite harrowing. It's like, this is wrong, you know? And I know this sounds maybe silly to someone listening, that obviously I would know that selling drugs is wrong, but maybe someone listening maybe thinks taking drugs is not wrong. You know, some same way I thought that selling it was not wrong, you know. So we can always kind of justify things. But the unveiling happened in parts. The next part was to know that we were being recycled. Like I literally was seeing it, like certain kind of spots that we would hang around, like chicken shops when we were younger. Like I was there maybe from the ages of 12 to about, I don't know, 15. And now I'm about 20 years old. And I'm seeing a new group, a new cohort of 12 to 15 year olds. And I'm like, 
this is actually being peddled by something. This is actually a, a system of sorts. You know, it's like we're on a conveyor belt. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, belt, wow. Yeah. How do you overcome that? It's not straightforward. Yeah. People do see my situation and say, oh, yeah, look, it is possible. Yes, it is possible. But I mean, a lot of stars have to align, mm. you know. And for me, it's conversation. Conversation is yeah. the most powerful thing on the planet. You know, my change of mind came through conversations with um, Pastor Mimi. She was the woman that actually um, did the rehabilitation work with me. Right, okay. Yeah, so we would literally, she didn't have no funding behind her. So I ended up moving into her house. And her house became a sort of informal therapeutic gang rehabilitation centre. You know, I, I actually lived with her throughout the whole duration of that process. And even after I denounced gangsterism, I stayed with her until I got onto my feet. You know, it was a sanctuary of sorts. You know. And how did you meet her? I actually met her. Her son was my right-hand man in the gang that we were actually in. Oh, really? Yeah. She ultimately went to save her son's life. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but with that mother-son dynamic, she weren't able to reach him. since so she thought that if she could reach one of his friends, maybe it would cross-pollinate. And it did. And she reached you? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Amazing. And is there a worry in just day-to-day life that you will bump into it? old enemy yeah and has that happened no there's no there's no fear of that one of my main enemies who actually <laughs> injured i won't say precisely what injured um a couple of my friends was one of my groomsmen at my wedding mm. yeah <laughs> absolutely wow. and we've hiked through swiss alps together as well you know <laughs> or worlds away from that life you know and yeah um I was very fortunate that when I denounced the gangsterism, I received the burden. And that burden led me to go to basically anyone and everyone as often as I could to tell them that I loved them and we've been lied to. Wow. You know, and that ended Amazing. up making me immune really, you know. And I say it in a sentence, it didn't take a sentence, but because it was outside of the script, just saying I love you, they didn't really know how to react to it. So even those that maybe owed me one, you know, would literally kind of just tell me to piss off or to F off or, you know, and I'd listen to them because they mean it, you know, and then I'll come back the next day, do the exact same thing. They might with the same intensity tell me to mm. F off and then I'll F off and then I'll come back the next day and then I'll be like, I love you, you've been lied to. And they're like, who's lied to us, Locks? Like, what are you talking about? Are you okay? Now they're actually inquiring on my mental health because they think I've lost my mind. So they're like, are you all right? And I can tell there's genuine concern. I'm like, my days, how has my enemies now got a level of concern for me? You know? And I that showed me it was working. So I would kind of just explain my bit to them. They wouldn't hear me too much. I would go and I'd come back and do the same thing again. And I ended up getting through to some of my kind of rivals, the main kind of ones I was at loggerheads with, for sure. And where did that spread? And they were like, if he's making peace with these guys, the intensity of their beef was much more than ours. So it must be for real. You know, and people just started to see me as a person of peace and they left me alone. They would actually subpoena their younger groups and the younger factions in their crews to actually listen to me. At one point, one guy actually parked his 80,000 pounds Mercedes Benz and told me to stand on the roof of it and literally speak to all of the young people he had rounded up, which is about maybe 30 of them. How did that you go know? down? It went down quite well, actually. It did. 
You know, they saw his disregard for the possession, the material kind of car, and the fact he had placed such an importance on my message that he wants me to stand on the um, hood of his car and deliver it to these young guys that he's now called out. And he never spoke like that. He was always speaking the contrary. So, yeah, they received it. The reception was there. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you've, you've had trauma actually leaving the gang. Yeah. And does that still remain now? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think trauma goes anywhere. Mm. Is it that yeah. thing where you feel like you're sometimes looking over your shoulder all the time? Yeah, but in a different way now. I know that there's no one actually gunning for me at this moment, you know, but if I heard a loud bang come from behind me right now, mm-hmm. I would turn and run at it instinctively. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's um, some have fight and flight. My one is just fight immediately. So I'm reading a lot at the moment about this fight, flight, yeah. freeze. Yeah. You know, I developed the fight. The fight was actually developed. It weren't like a natural thing, you know, but I've done it so much that the neurological kind of pathways, they are really, I mean, I can't get rid of it till this day. So still now you would say it is fight. It is fight. If a loud bang happens behind me, I don't follow through, but they're going to get, I'm going to flinch in their direction. Yeah. But then once I realise what's happened, I'm like, hey, hold on. It's yeah. not necessary. You know, I'm no longer in that. Yeah, you but know? actually what's lovely is that when I see you, I really see you as a fighter, but not in yeah. that way because I've never yeah. seen you in that way fighting, yeah. but a real fighter in life and actually fighting for your community today, but in a completely different way to Absolutely. how you were fighting for your... It's what made um, me actually fight for reform. My, my own personal rehabilitation. That was a fight. And I fought with my friends in mind. I was like, if I'm able to touch a transformed me, if I'm able to actually change, you know, Mm. that might inspire them to also change. And it did. And that was my actual motivation, you know, and you're absolutely right in terms of like the work I do today, it is about righting some wrongs and there is a level of fight there for sure. And now you're a dad. I am. Which is amazing. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Does the fear now, well, I don't know, but do you fear for him and you probably just do not want him to go down that route that you went down? Absolutely. I just couldn't bear to lose him so tragically to something that is actually so avoidable. It just wouldn't compute, you know? Yeah, I do. Definitely, I am afraid. But it just makes me more concerned about everybody's sons. Mm everybody's you know before I had a kind of concern about my brothers you know but now I'm having a concern about everyone's sons and I just feel like it's deeper absolutely I just feel as if it's just put more of a battery in my back certainly to help and to change things yeah and how do you think we can use fear in a positive way how do you think we can have a kind of healthy relationship to it and healthy relationship with fear fear the right things fear is necessary Mm, I think so yeah (laughs) fear is absolutely necessary you know um, it's just what we are afraid of you know I'm afraid to put my hand in the open fire 
you know, for good reason. I'll lose some fingers, you know. So um, I don't think fear is a bad thing. It's what we are afraid of, that we shouldn't be afraid of being us, our true selves. So, Carl, I ask everyone, um, what is the place that they go to when they are feeling afraid? And that could be a place in your imagination or that could be a physical place. Mm -hmm. What would that be for you? When I'm feeling afraid, I definitely go to a place of prayer. Absolutely. That would be my reaction. Like the plane's going down. Like, I mean, I'm definitely gonna, I'm gonna pray with some fervency, you know. Actually, and even if the plane's not going down and it's a more kind of like a lighter situation, you know, I would just say a lighter prayer. But I do kind of just, yeah, that makes me feel a lot more secure. Yeah, absolutely. And what about the song or piece of music? Oh. You know what? That makes me feel the least afraid. Rap music. I mean, it would be like the real kind of quite punchy ones. Like if I am listening to that, it is an injection of, I don't know. You know what I mean? It's just like, yeah. (laughs) You know, (laughs) not feeling so vulnerable. (laughs) Mine's so different. Mine would probably be musical theatre. That is how different different our minds are working on that front. (laughs) Probably should not admit that. That's not very cool, is it? Um, And what would you do if you were not afraid? Wow. If fear didn't exist, what would you do? More. I would do more. I definitely would do more. I would do a lot more, but it's weird, a lot less. Yeah. I'm making no sense but no, I would I do get it. I get you know it. Um, some of the things I'm doing at the moment in my life I feel as if it's a, a result of fear you know like maybe you've got to do this to keep the lights on or you've got to do this so that they kind of culturally accept you or you've got to do this so that you're seen as being I don't know of this kind of you know like so that's the less some of those will kind of fall off you know but then the more is the, the, the things that, you know, is on my heart to do, you know. Mm. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm terrified. I think I would share a lot more. Like share my poetry, you know, share me, my truth, my experiences, you know. My, my, my hopes, my fears even. But that's so important because as you said before, it's about, you know, when I asked you how can we change gang crime and how can we make it better where at the moment I feel it's really at its worst yeah. and you said conversations mm, absolutely and the fact that you are talking and you are speaking about your experience yeah oh, it's huge it's, 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 yeah. it's huge isn't it absolutely Carl thank you so much can you just tell me what you're up to at the moment because I know you've got there's a potential book coming out there is a potential book there's for sure. poetry night yeah and so if people want to know more and find out more where can they find you yeah absolutely instagram yeah on the gram for sure so um carl which is k-a-r-l underscore loco l-o-k-k-o um that's what i'm most active on and if there's any kind of upcoming event or any release of mine it would definitely be on there you know i've also got my website carlloco.com great yeah so you can catch some stuff on there 
And yeah, um, I say what I'm most excited about actually upcoming is the true fiction novel. That's about my life. Great. Yes. I will definitely be reading that. Ah, thank you. So what is this poem called? This poem's actually called Who's Praying for the Daredevil. I actually wrote this poem off the back of me climbing Sydney Harbour Bridge. Wow. You know, yeah, so during my um, tour in Australia, we went to the part of the bridge where the famous f- French tightroper, he had actually done a tightrope and they had had to shut down the bridge and the guide was going through that and that's when it hit me. I had actually got quite tired in the pursuit for bringing about change and um, helping people kind of escape the clutches of gangsterism and street life because I assumed when they saw me in my situation they were going to say, hey, I can do it too and there was going to be some mass exodus and that didn't happen. But it was only when I got to that point on the bridge that I realised, wait a second, I've had to climb over a tightrope. Tightrope walking is not attractive. Tightrope walking takes yourself putting... It's you know, terrifying. It's terrifying. <laughs> so no wonder they're seeing it and not wanting to follow. You know, I had to put myself in a blender to learn 10 new words a day, read a book a week. I was doing 30 to 40 one-on-one meetings a week. You know, I was knocking on doors, just writing proposals left, right and centre. You know, like I was just taking a huge amount of risk and making myself, putting myself out there, you know. And yeah, so anyway, off the back of it, this poem's come, yeah? Okay. I stand sore. They saw me sore, yet now ignore that I stand sore. It hurts to put these feet on floor because our souls are red, torn and raw. Carpet burned from war. On a bridge, gravity is a friend, but on a tightrope, the enemy. Making you feel everything, draining at your energy. So now I'm wobbling while I'm walking through the air because of wind, because of fear, because I'm on this high wire and I shouldn't be up here. I would rather take the bridge. It's safe to take the bridge. But we lost the war and they already took the bridge. Silver spoons for metal work, they already took the bridge. Fairer tones and straighter hair, they already took the bridge. Penis propaganda, they already took the bridge. Accents in the grammar, they already took the bridge. So I'm forced to walk the line. But it's so high. And the clouds are choke thick. So I'm forced to walk it blind. But just when they thought all hope was lost, I juggle while I walk across. It's a hunger, shame and trauma toss. One after the other. Shame in the right, hunger in the left, trauma in flight, one after the other, round and round. We also can only go one after the other. This rope can't take all our weight. So once the diversity box is ticked, the rest in line must wait. They say no risk, no reward. Yet, he walked the public school bridge over to awards. Without friction made fire burns on feet over to applause. They walked over floors even with their floors. It is not the same. I don't mind to walk this walk of shame. But at least let the walk we walk have frame whether iron or timber by name. I've heard the road to hell is broad. 
However, the one out I see is thin. Tightrope slim. I should know I walked it. Almost died and hold the trauma deep within. And once I made it to the other side, I sighed. And looked behind to see my kin. But there was no one. None were inspired. Because the only difference between high-wired and expired is a fall. So let us take the bricks they want to build a wall with and build a bridge, a real bridge for us all. Thank you so much. My pleasure. That my was pleasure. beautiful. Thank you so I've much. I've actually got goosebumps <laughs> all up my arm. Oh. <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you. Thank oh, you pleasure, so much. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Fear Itself. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be hugely appreciated if you could subscribe on your favourite podcast app and maybe share it with a friend who you think might like it. You can also find me on Instagram at Cressida Bonus. I'd like to give a special thanks to the producer and editor Hannah Varrell, James and Kazra at One Fine Play for their fantastic studio space, and Malt Martin for his beautiful music. Tune in next week when I will be chatting to another great guest about all things fear. Thanks guys, and see you next week.